All right. Well, good morning, Redemption, again. Uh, my name is Josh Butler. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, if you are new or a visitor, we're grateful you're here with us. Um, if you need a Bible, feel free to raise your hand. Our ushers would love to come and bring you a Bible. We're going to be in Exodus 1 today, so feel free to turn there. We are launching into a new series this morning on Exodus, and I am excited because Exodus, it is the story of salvation. It is the story of God delivering his people. And we find it here in context as a story of God delivering a nation of slaves from the most powerful empire on earth. And this story, it's a foundation story, both for Israel and the Old Testament as a people, and likewise for the church. Uh, you may not know, but every week when we come and we take the bread and the wine of the Eucharist, uh, this was originally, it's a Passover meal. That when Jesus institutes it, uh, it's the Passover meal celebrating, it's an Exodus meal celebrating the deliverance of people from Egypt. Jesus is essentially saying, I'm making you, my people, an Exodus people, preparing for deliverance from the powers of this world into the kingdom of God, the promised land of his kingdom. And this story is a foundation story not only for God's people, it's had a dramatic impact on culture and the world at large. Scholars would see this as a, a, a story, a narrative, a part of our history that has brought human rights and dignity uh, to the forefront uh, of internationally. It's, it's been a central part of the development of that in human culture. Uh, it's also, we can see it from a variety of angles influencing movements and people, from the Puritans and pilgrims who saw Exodus themes and narratives as they resisted kind of the overbearing monarchy that resisted, to black slaves from Africa in the fields of this country who cried and sang out, go down, Moses, way down to Egypt, and tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. It has sparked uh, an aspiration and a recognition of the dignity of every human person and a confrontation with the powers of the world when they stand opposed or corruptly against that. It is a story of freedom. And freedom is a high cultural value that we have, but when we think of freedom, we tend to think of freedom, only freedom from, like freedom from things that might oppress or restrict or constrain us. But we find in Exodus a much more comprehensive vision of freedom, that a true freedom is not only freedom from the bad stuff, it's freedom for the good stuff. The first half of Exodus, we see God delivering his people freedom from the bad stuff, from Egypt. But then in the second half, we see God drawing his people freedom for the good stuff, freedom into life with God. That God draws us out as his people of oppression in order to draw us in into life with him. As Exodus opens in the first seven verses, Genesis 1, or Exodus uh, 1 to 7 here, verses 1 to 7. I'm going to set my timer because I have a tendency to go long and I'm going to try not to. <laughs> uh, in verses 1 to 7, we see that Israel has grown from a family to a nation. Right? That they have gone from 70 people to over 600,000 men, which means over a million people in the nation as a whole. And so back in Genesis, we see it's a story of a family, Abraham, and it's stories of husbands and wives and children and sibling rivalries and all. And now as we move into Exodus, this is the story of that family who's now grown into a nation, a people. And in verse 7, it says, uh, The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And if you've been reading Genesis so far, that verse should spark echoes of the story that's happened thus far. 
that God is being faithful to fulfill his promises. That God told Abraham, I'm going to grow your people. From you is going to come a great nation. There will be more than the uh, stars in the sky and more than the sand on the seashore. And God is fulfilling that promise. When we read here that there were 70 people who originally came, uh, the tribes of Israel, into Egypt, uh, that should echo with the story of Noah, where after the flood, uh, God gives Noah 70 grandchildren. It's the table of nations. It's saying these are the people in Genesis 10 that the nations of the world are going to come from. We find here a picture that the God of life is overcoming the curse of sin and death. This is the story of a life-giving God who's overcoming the curse of sin and death in the world. And Israel is now a nation within a nation. They are an immigrant people residing in a foreign land. And as God is blessing them and they're growing and there's this move of God, Pharaoh doesn't like it and sets himself in opposition to it. So let's start here in verse 8. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too, are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So let's stop there for, the, for a minute. The first thing we see here is that the house of bread has become a house of bondage. The house of bread has become a house of bondage. Uh, the reason that Israel initially goes to Egypt is to get bread, is to get grain. At the end of Genesis, there's a famine, which famine's like a mark of the curse in the world. And, and so they, they have to go to Egypt to get bread. But now as they've grown three to four generations later, this place they went to for bread has now become a place of bondage. And there's a sense here in which the sins of the forefathers are coming home to roost. When it says that the Egyptians, they afflicted and mistreated them, that's the same word that's used back for what Abraham and Sarah did to Hagar. That Abraham and Sarah, two times the word is used for what they did when they oppressed Hagar, their servant girl, in their own household. And when they cast her out, and yet God heard her cry when she had her child Ishmael. God heard her cry and cared for her. And it was ultimately through the Ishmaelites that uh, Joseph is sent into slavery sold into slavery by his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so in, in Genesis, as, this, as the story develops, there's this dark side to Israel's family history where Abraham and Sarah essentially mistreat and oppress a slave. And the child that comes through that, God hears the cry of that child. And, and through those children, then later Israel itself, they're, they're, they're a vehicle through which Israel goes into Egypt. And now there's almost an inversion of that story where the sins of the forefathers now have come home to roost. And Israel finds themselves as a nation crying out, being oppressed and mistreated by someone over them in a land of bondage. We may say, I'm not responsible for what my ancestors did, but the Bible begs to differ. Exodus 34, 7 says that God is a God who visits the iniquity of the sins of the forefathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations. And that's something we see here. That impact is carrying forward in history. God says we are responsible for our people's history. 
We are responsible for our people's history. And as this house of bread becomes a house of bondage, especially sometimes the things we go to for comfort can take us captive. Sometimes things we go to for comfort can end up leading us into captivity. Maybe those, uh, the, the drugs, legal or not, that we went to to kind of take the edge off can over time become the things we need uh, or we don't know who we are without them. Sometimes that unhealthy relationship that we settle for just so you don't have to feel alone can be the place that you feel trapped eventually with no way out. That sometimes the, um, we go to Instagram, right? And Instagram, you can use, uh, sometimes you can use Instagram to try and uh, get an escape for a little while from, from your life, you know? And then over time, though, you can feel like dissatisfied perpetually with the life you've been given. That comfort food can become the chronic pain you endure, right? The comfort food we can consume can become the chronic pain you endure. Or the gym membership you got to get healthy can over time become the body image you're obsessed with in order to feel okay with yourself. There are these things that we can go to for comfort that aren't necessarily bad in of themselves, but downstream can lead us to a place of captivity. And we find ourselves crying out to God, God, I came here for comfort, but now I find myself captive. And Pharaoh is a harsh taskmaster. We see here that Pharaoh is the agent of their oppression. His concern, he's motivated by fear. And so Pharaoh is saying, essentially, these immigrants in our land, they're becoming too numerous, and I'm afraid. So he stokes fear with crazy rhetoric amongst the people. And a few of his accusations, he says, uh, they're they're getting too numerous, so they're going to kind of take over our culture. Uh, public safety, like, hey, there's going to be a threat to the public safety if they, they get too big, they join our enemies. Uh, later he says, oh, they're lazy, right? Um, even though they're working harder than anyone else in the empire. And likewise, he essentially says here, though, that the irony is that he, he needs their labor. Why doesn't he just kick them out then? Well, because the economy that has built Egypt requires them or it's not going to work. Fortunately, we've moved away from all that today, so there's nothing... <laughs> Hold a pin on that. We'll come back. We'll come back later. But we also see that Pharaoh did not know Joseph, right? It says, it's interesting. Pharaoh did not know Joseph. Pharaoh has forgotten his national history. He's forgotten how this immigrant people has been a blessing to his nation, how actually they played a pivotal role in building up Egypt, that Joseph and that story, it's part of the foundation for how Egypt became the superpower it was. And also, just practically, it seems to me that Pharaoh's kind of an idiot, right? Because his strategy is going, hey, they're getting too big, so I got it. I know what I'll do. Like, I'm going to make them work heavy construction jobs where they will come home to their wives all hot, sweaty, muscular, whatever, right? You know? <laughs> and <laughs> give them harsh taskmasters so they'll get all frustrated and have nowhere to vent that frustration or kind of let that out. But coming home at the end of the day. I'm waking work long hours, so they're only home at night, and the only place they've got for any respite is the bedroom, right? That'll solve this whole procreation problem, right? Like, Pharaoh's kind of an idiot, right? And we read that, um, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. The more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and grew. So God, so Pharaoh throws a volley, God volleys back, and the blessing is still coming. He's still causing his people to grow. And it says the Egyptians are filled with, the, with dread. Essentially, that's something that the beasts and creatures of the field were filled with. And now there's a sense that like, uh, they're almost like becoming inhuman to 
towards their neighbors, and they treat them with ruthless severity. This is the forcing them to work with mortar and brick. This is a Tower of Babel image. It's an echo from Tower of Babel. Egypt is building this thing as a, a name to itself. It's building up its might on the backs of God's people. And yet God hears the cry. Pharaoh has a scarcity mentality here rather than abundance mentality, right? Scarcity kind of going, man, there's only so much of the pie to go around. And so uh, it's a zero-sum game. And so for, in order for us to have more, you have to have less. And the reality of the gospel, though, is that God has an abundance mentality. God's going, I've packed into creation enough for everyone. Like, if we use our creativity and our imagination and our skills, we, 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 can, we can bring forth enough to care for, care for us all. But Pharaoh has the scarcity mentality. And often today, too, you know, we can have the scarcity mentality. You can think there, there's not enough. And some of the signs that you have a scarcity mentality, you have trouble being generous. You see others as competitors rather than collaborators. It can lead to stress and anxiety about tomorrow. Like, will there be enough? You hoard money and wealth and have a hard time being generous because you the fear of, like, what if there's not enough tomorrow? You can push your coworker down with gossip or whatever so you can set yourself up for that promotion. Signs of a scarcity mentality uh, is that for me to win, you have to lose. Right? And yet this is not the way of the gospel. Uh, God has given you enough. But somebody say, it's enough. Right? It's, God's enough. It's enough. God's enough. He's given you enough. He's given you and I enough. And when God is your God, when the abundance of God and his kingdom is in your life, it means that whether in feast or in famine, you can live a life of servant-centered generosity to the world and to God's people. An abundance mentality will turn your kingdom into a house of bread, making you a generous person. A scarcity mentality will turn your kingdom into a house of bondage, a place of control and taking. All right, well, let's move on to the next part of the passage, verse 15. It says, Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth because the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. The midwives give us a picture here of civil disobedience, actually godly disobedience. It's interesting. This is the first time in recorded history an act of civil disobedience before a king. And I find this fascinating. You, know, you often hear sometimes that question, the ethical quandary of like, okay, if the Nazis come to your door and they're asking, uh, do you have any, any Jews inside? You know, like, is it okay to lie to protect the people or is that, you know, is God going to be upset you lie? Yes, you can lie. You should lie. Right, like, like we see here, Shipram, who are the midwives lie, and it's not like God just kind of like, okay, I'll turn a blind cheek to that one. I get it. It was hard, you know. No, God actually sees this as an act of faithfulness. They said they did it because they feared God, and God actually responds with favor, and blessing upon them. Rahab does something similar with the spies at Jericho, and she gets grafted into the line of Jesus. Right? 
So there's a picture here of civil disobedience that God honors and sees as faithfulness to him. Uh, it's interesting, Jonathan Sachs, he's a rabbi, so a Jewish rabbi, Jonathan Sachs observes, this is the first time in recorded world history that we have an act of civil disobedience like this, uh, which back then was more revolutionary because it was thought, hey, Pharaoh, the king, is top dog. He's, the high, he's above the law almost, right? And it's saying, no, there is a higher law above Pharaoh. There is a higher authority. There is a higher king. There is God Almighty, and generally we obey the laws of the land, the rules of the land, but there may come times or a moment where obedience to God means civil disobedience to a corrupt and unjust ruler, right? So we see this picture here in Shifra and Pua. And it's, uh, God gives them uh, families. Uh, back in this day, one of the reasons sometimes that, that many would become midwives, scholars would say, is, is um, uh, that they were unable to have children of their own. And so the, the significance of God's blessing upon them for this act of civil disobedience to Pharaoh, which is ultimately an act of obedience to God. And I find it interesting, too, uh, that Shifra and Pua are amongst many women who are heroines in the book of Exodus. Exodus is filled with women are uh, heroines, where we often focus on Moses, uh, but there are six key figures here in these early chapters of Genesis. So there's Jochebed, Moses' mom, who has the courage to have a baby at a time knowing he might be killed. There is Miriam, Moses' sister, who follows him and tracks him to make sure he stays connected and knows who his people are. There is Pharaoh's own daughter, who adopts Moses as her own in defiance of her father's explicit command. There is, um, uh, there is Zipporah, Moses' Midianite wife, who later in the story will save Moses' life. And here there is Shifra and Pua, these two midwives who fear God and act to protect him. So it's been said in the past, you know, uh, you've maybe heard the phrase back in the day, like behind every great man there's a great woman. Well, behind Moses there's six, right? <laughs> and <laughs> we can kind of sometimes focus on Moses and miss this bigger picture of God is using a variety of faithful people to accomplish his purposes of salvation. And there is something comical in this scene as well. Uh, Shifra means uh, fairness, and Pua uh, probably means light. It comes from a root that means like to glitter or to shine. And so you've got kind of this picture where this corrupt pharaoh goes to fairness and shine and says, hey, fairness and shine, I want you to kill the male children. And no, <laughs> like their names foreshadow what they're going to do. They act in fairness and they shine in the face of this corrupt pharaoh with his hardened and darkened heart. They are like the Rosa Parks of this story that display that it's right sometimes to resist unjust laws. And there's an irony here. So Pharaoh, it says, it moves, the scene now moves from the hospital to the public square at the end, where Pharaoh starts by telling the midwives, but now when that's not working, he goes to all the people, and he goes to, to everyone and says, hey, if there's a male child, you drown it in the Nile River. This has moved to genocide. It's the rallying of a people and a culture against the vulnerable minority in their midst. And there's an irony here in that Exodus opens with the drowning of the male uh, Hebrew of Israel's male boys in the water. But Exodus is going to end, this Exodus story with Egypt is going to end with God drowning the Egyptian males in the water at the closing of the Red Sea. Right, so the book ends. Evil is going to come back 
on its own head. That the things we need to be wary of, the things we can give ourselves to, can eventually come back to destroy us. And yet God is a God of salvation and deliverance and light who is out to set his people free. All right, well, what does this mean for us today? The question I want to ask is, where are we in the story? As we kind of enter Exodus and set up the, this, this theme, uh, where are we in the story? Are we Egypt or are we Israel? Are we the empire of Pharaoh or are we the people of God? And I suggest to you, we are both, right? One of the ironies for us today is that we find ourselves as both uh, Egypt and Israel, in a sense. We are both America and we are the church, we are a superpower that in many ways uh, have good aspects like any nation power of the world, and yet there are many ways in which we want to rule the earth without God on our own terms. And simultaneously, we are the church. We are the people of God seeking to live faithfully and prepare ourselves for his great act of deliverance, both that he has done in Christ and that he will do the consummation of all things and the coming of the kingdom. And so what does this mean for us today? Well, I want to look first at ways that we're like, we can be like Egypt, and second, at ways we can be like Israel in the story, right? And this means talking about something that I'm actually kind of hesitant to talk about, which is politics, right? One of the reasons I'm hesitant to talk about this is, A, because this can come off, I hate that this could come off like shock jock, right? Okay, hey, pastor's going to try and preach about politics. I'm not an expert on a lot of this stuff, so I don't claim to be. Uh, second, that this is, we live in a highly polarized culture and time. And it's easily, it's so easy for things to be misheard or from a different angle or intention than what's intended to be communicated. And third is because we are a bipartisan community, right? We want to be a people, progressive, conservative, at the table together, left or right, learning to follow Jesus and pressing this thing together. So uh, those would be some of my concerns, but we got to go there because Exodus goes there, right? My conviction being in the text this week has been that it would be too easy to make this about just kind of a spiritual Egypt is Satan and the devil, and, and uh, this is about personal deliverance, which is all true, and we get there, and we're going to get there in this series. But Exodus opens, and it's talking about politics. It's talking about a conflict of kingdoms. It's talking about this conflict of kingdoms and God's hearing the cry of his people and God setting himself in, in, towards an act of deliverance. And so there's two echoes here, I think, that we see of two issues. Uh, we see echoes here of both immigration and abortion. One that tends to be an issue on the left, another that tends to be an issue on the right. So in an attempt to try and go bipartisan here, right, we're going to take a look at each and ask that you maybe receive this with, with grace if, if you differ. But uh, I want us to try and grapple with, does this story have relevance in these ways for us today? So if we start with immigration, uh, Exodus is a story of the national leader of the strongest empire in the world who uses fear and rhetoric to turn his people against a vulnerable immigrant population, forgetting the immense contribution they've historically made to his land and increasing both the public hostility towards them and the burden on their backs. Now, today, I say there are some myths about immigrants and immigration today, right? Now, I'm not talking about, hear me, I'm not advocating for open borders. I'm not saying illegal immigration is okay, right? Like, I think there's... It's complex, and there's a lot to it, but I want to talk specifically about legal immigration and some of the myths out there today. Um, so these are four myths uh, that I think are common today. Uh, for those who are worried, this is like Marxist propaganda. This comes from the George W. Bush Institute for Immigration Reform, so not exactly left-wing agitprop, right? <laughs> uh, okay, 
But four myths that are common today. First, immigrants are taking over, which sounds kind of like Pharaoh going, gee, they're becoming too numerous, we're scared. Uh, the reality, the fact, immigrants actually account for 13.5% of the total U.S. population, which is in line with historical norms. Uh, second myth, immigrants don't work. We hear this in Pharaoh later too, they're lazy. Fact, 72.5% uh, of immigrants believe that work is how you succeed in America and are responsible for half the total U.S. labor force growth over the last decade. Um, in addition, many economists note how with our falling birth rate that we're not reproducing uh, population enough that uh, it's helping supply replacement levels for future labor force. Uh, the third is immigrants take American jobs. Uh, fact, 7.6% of immigrants were self-employed compared to 5.6% of native-born Americans, and they founded more than 40% of Fortune 500 companies. Um, additionally, most economists agree uh, they tend to take the jobs that nobody else wants, the brick and mortar jobs. Fourth, and finally, the myth that they don't, uh, immigrants don't help the economy. In fact, immigrant-owned businesses with employees have an average of 11 employees. And uh, likewise, uh, the average immigrant pays $7,000 in taxes into the system and only receives $4,000 back, uh, so a surplus. Uh, even undocumented immigrants pay $11.6 billion a year in taxes. Uh, also, the myth of public safety, uh, and the reality is immigrants commit way less crime than the citizen population. It's also the myth that most are from Mexico. Uh, the reality is there are more from China, more immigrants stay from China than from Mexico, 30% from Asia. And we see, not only this, we see that throughout the Bible, uh, immigrants are not just them, they are us. Abraham, Ruth, Moses, David, Jacob, Jesus all experience these seasons of life, which they're immigrants residing in a foreign land. And in church history, Irenaeus and Athanasius in the early church, uh, Bonhoeffer and Barth in resistance to the Nazis in uh, the 20th century, and John Calvin, who's played a significant role in shaping uh, much of the, our theology and things that we would hold here as, our church, as a church, we only have the blessing that he's brought to the life of the church because of the hospitality he was showed as an immigrant while residing in a foreign land. So I believe that there is uh, plenty of room for different perspectives and debate on the complex topic of immigration. Uh, but what is not okay is that we would turn to fear or hate or demonization and that we would allow at times what can become uh, rhetoric in our country that, that can lean that way, that we would actually be like Shifra and Pua, that we would not participate when things turn to a direction that stands against the dignity of God's image bearers, and that we would actually stand for those that God has identified with, both as his people. Uh, many, a large amount of immigrant population here are believers, and beyond as those who are image bearers who bear the dignity of his image. Because as a church, Jesus is calling us to be an exodus people who care for the plight of the immigrant who can often be a bit more vulnerable in our borders. <clears throat> All right, well, second, um, Exodus is also a story of the citizens of a superpower killing infants who are seen as an inconvenience, the most vulnerable sacrificed in a false cultural vision of freedom founded upon the scarcity of a fallen world rather than the abundance of God. Uh, since 1973, there have been over 60 million uh, abortions here in, in the U.S., and that is a tragic number. And one piece that feels like it also kind of echoes Exodus here is um, some of the e even racist roots in 
this history. Uh, Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the country, has a dark history that eerily echoes Exodus 1. Margaret Sanger, the organization's founder, was a eugenicist, a blatant racist, and her main concern in starting the organization was controlling the quote-unquote breeding of minority populations, quote, particularly the growth of populations we don't want too many of, end quote. She feared they were becoming too numerous and would breed social problems. And sadly, these are the populations disproportionately impacted by her legacy. Today, uh, white supremacists, and that's bad in case there's any question here, right? Uh, <laughs> no. uh, today, white supremacists favor abortion for, sa for the same reasons. Uh, Richard Spencer, a leading white supremacist, says he loves abortion. He's so in favor of it and he, because, quote, the people who are having abortions are generally very often black or Hispanic or from very poor circumstances. They use abortion as birth control, end quote, he says. And he loves and rejoices in it because he sees it as uh, reducing and limiting a population he finds undesirable. This is horrible. Let's be clear. Both on the grounds here of that kind of white supremacy, I just think it's, it's tragically fascinating that it echoes the logic of Pharaoh in uh, Exodus 1. Um, but it's horrific on the mere grounds of the shedding of human, innocent human life, the taking of life from the most vulnerable, whatever ethnicity, right? That abortion, it's, it's a blight on our country. This is horrible. Uh, and if this is part of your history, uh, there is grace and mercy. Like people ask me, hey, are you, you know, pro are you pro, uh, pro life or pro choice? Or, you know, it can be kind of like, are you pro the, the child or pro the woman? I say I'm pro grace, like I'm for both. But uh, we, because we're for grace, if, you, if, if that's part of your story, we're, Jesus is for you. We love you. We're for you. Um, but we want to stand with the most vulnerable in our society. And one of the most vulnerable populations is the unborn. And while there's grace for all of us, whether you're coming from a backdrop of maybe white supremacy or having had an abortion or whatever the thing is, uh, there's grace for all of us, but it involves turning from our history, not celebrating it. I find this quote interesting by uh, Ray Bakke. It speaks to both immigration and abortion. He says, as our cities swell with immigrants and migrants, I'm reminded that Jesus was born in a borrowed barn in Asia and became an African refugee in Egypt. So the Christmas story is about an international migrant Furthermore, a whole village full of baby boys died for Jesus before he had the opportunity to die for them on the cross. Surely this Jesus understands the pain of children who die for the sins of adults in our cities. We see that Exodus here is bipartisan, right? God is an equal opportunity offender. And I'm not trying to say here, hey, this is who you should vote for. This is, I mean, the reality is this stuff gets complex. I think in the last election, we had the choice to, uh, we had the choice to vote for one pharaoh who wanted to use language of fear and rhetoric against vulnerable immigrant populations, or we had the choice to vote for, you know, elect another pharaoh who wanted to drown babies in the Nile. Like, it's, 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 it's complicated. There's no perfect... This is not going, hey, we should be one party or the other. This is going whatever party we're in, left or right, uh, we've got a problem as a culture, right? And this is about us. Uh, this is not just about our leaders, though, right? This is about us as a whole. It's interesting to me that Pharaoh's not given a name. We're not told, hey, this is Pharaoh Ramses or Tutankhamun or which one. You know, most scholars say this was intentional, that it's designed to show Pharaoh is an icon or representative of the people as a whole. 
he reflects and displays kind of the character and nature of Egypt, where it's gone. Uh, the early church had a saying that God gives a society the leaders they deserve. And whether or not we think that was true back then, uh, it's kind of hard to avoid in a democracy where we <laughs> choose who we want. And for myself, you know, in the last election, it felt like in many ways looking in a national mirror, right? Like uh, on the one side, Trump seemed to embody the sexual immorality, greed, and idolatry that's become all too pervasive in our culture, whereas Clinton seemed to embody the deception, the pursuit of power at any cost, and the two-facedness so endemic in our culture. Most folks I know weren't stoked, like, hey, this is my, my person and my person. Most folks felt like I'm caught, kind of which is the lesser of two evils sort of deal, right? And there's an interesting uh, quote by John Calvin. He says that when God is about to bring judgment, wicked leaders rise up. And it's interesting. We see that kind of theme in Scripture. And it kind of provokes the question, I don't want to get all apocalyptic, but are we on the precipice of judgment? And regardless of where we land on that, I think the question becomes, where is our hope? It's the people of God. Where is our hope? Because we are not only... Egypt in the story, we are also Israel. We are also the people of God awaiting our coming deliverance. And so how do we live faithfully into this Exodus story today? Well, my challenge to you at all and myself is that you and I, that we would be a midwife, right? The call is to be a midwife. It may not be the occupation you were planning on going into, you're expecting to do, uh, but that we want to be like Shifra and Pua in the story, called to be a midwife, who contribute to life in a culture of death, that we would be fairness and light in a time of corruption and darkness, that we would help give birth to new humanity, God's new creation from the womb of the old world, even if it means defying the rulers and powers of our present age. We are the church, the people of God. We are awaiting our coming deliverance. And I believe that God wants to form us as an exodus people, a colony of the kingdom in the midst of the empire, a people who are being formed and prepared and marked by the life of Jesus in the midst of the passing age. So in the weeks to come, as we, we dive into exodus, we're going to see a lot more. What does that look, how does God want to shape us as his people? But I think, like Shipra and Pua here, the challenge for us today is that you would be astute to where are we at, the astute to the context that we live in, how we are not in the promised land yet, right? Like, like this is not the promised land. And, and in some ways, it may get worse before it gets better. And yet we have a God who hears the cries of his people and a God who wants to form us even now that our ultimate allegiance would not be to uh, any earthly power authority that, that we would respect and submit to uh, as much as possible and all, and yet that our higher allegiance is to Christ as king, that he is a higher authority, the king of kings and the Lord of lords before whom every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that you and I, that we as a congregation, that God is calling us to become shaped by his kingdom, to recognize the context we're in and to be shaped in preparation for his deliverance. As we come to uh, the table this morning, as we come to the bread and the wine of communion, we come to Christ's body given and his blood shed. And this is, as I mentioned, this is an Exodus meal. 
Jesus, when he institutes this, he's celebrating Passover, the night that marked Israel's deliverance from Egypt. And so as we come today, the invitation is come and be formed as an Exodus people. Be formed as, like those midwives whose highest allegiance is to God as king, that we would be faithful to the God who is faithful to us. Would you join me in prayer? God, I thank you that you are king of all the earth, that you are patient with the powers of injustice in our world, even in our own lives, God, but that your patience will not last forever, God. God, it's hope that you're patient with us even now, and it's, it's also hope, God, that your patience will not last forever, that you are coming to judge and to redeem. So God, we pray now, God, we just acknowledge uh, the ways that we are Egypt, God, that, that since we're, God, I think of that famous saying, it took you one day to get Israel out of Egypt and 40 years to get Egypt out of Israel, God. And we pray that you would be getting Egypt out of us, God, the ways that we have been shaped and formed by unhealthy patterns, destructive ways, lies of the enemy, God, unhealthy attitudes and practices in our culture. Jesus, we pray that you would not only uproot those, but replace them with something better, that which is good and right and true. Make us like Shifra and Pua, we pray, God, that we would be people of fairness and life, even in dark times, God. That we would be contributors, God, to a culture of life in the midst of what often feels like a culture of death. Father, I pray that we would stand for the dignity of all people. Think today particularly of the immigrants and the unborn, God. But that we would uh, promote a culture of life, not only for the unborn, but for all humanity, God. We'd be attentive to those who maybe are being mistreated, not only in our nation, but in in our midst, God, in our lives, in our neighborhoods, in our communities. God, make us attentive and form us, God, as a people who recognize that our ultimate home is coming your kingdom's coming for the world, God, and that we would be prepared for that journey to the promised land. Jesus, in your name and for your glory that we pray these things.